The D2C Growth Show. Hi, welcome to the DDC Growth Show by Hashtag Paid. My name is Roger, and every episode, I sit down with founders and leaders in e-commerce. And we talk about everything from starting, launching, and growing a brand. And today, I'm talking to Katie Marshall, General Manager at Pattern Brands. Katie, thanks for, thanks for being here today. It's great to be here, Roger. Nice. There's a lot of responsibility in your role as a general manager. Uh, as a general manager. Um, help us understand what the competing priorities are for you at, at Pattern Brands. Absolutely. You know, like like many startups, we're a lean team with a lot of ideas. And you know, I've worked in, in startups in the past, and it's always a game of really rigorous prioritization. For us, I think, you know, it's just even more so because we were operating two brands and you know incubating and building more. So, you know, we're very nimble. We like to move quickly. And I would say, you know, for us especially, we try to keep a very high bar for ideas because we have to be efficient. That's the nature of running a multi-brand business. Yeah, a high bar for ideas. What does that, can you unpack what that means? Yeah, you know, we really look at prioritizing based on impact versus complexity. And how do we drive the most impact while adding the least amount of complexity to our work and to the business? You know, one thing that, that we've learned early is that when you have multiple brands, especially at a very early stage, you have to look for the commonalities and try to keep things simple and find sort of the synergies in execution. Otherwise, you end up going down different rabbit holes that aren't necessarily providing the most impact for the whole business. So we really try to encourage our team to like think with the whole business in mind and think about highest total impact, least total complexity. And that's actually part of why our team is structured. Um, so we have very few people focused on one brand and one opportunity. Most folks are dynamically working across both. So they have the context, they have the big picture, and they're sort of empowered to make those prioritization decisions. That's really wise. So impact versus complexity so that you can not just execute something for one brand, but execute that across the family of brands. Exactly. Really smart. And uh, your team is, is you lead a, a quite a diverse team because you got brand, product marketing, growth, creative strategy, business ops. Um, and, and it's not just for one brand, it's kind of for three um, because you got equal parts, you got open spaces, and then you have the overall business to manage and look out for. So it, technically, it's all of those functions times three. You gave us a little insight in, into how you operate and, and sort of make it a bit more streamlined, but. Um, what else drives your prioritization when it comes to when it comes to those disciplines, marketing, growth, creative, strategy, ops? How do you divide your time and know where to spend your time? Yeah, absolutely. I would say first, as a, you know, I'm a big proponent of having brand marketing, growth marketing, product marketing, and creative all living under sort of the same leadership and the same roof because that's how I think we get to the strongest outcome. Mm-hmm. You know creatively for the business and, and also for the consumer. And, you know, I, there's a lot that's been said probably on your podcast, even about how those teams have sort of different and competing priorities. But to me, honestly, it starts with a really strong vision of the brand and our value to the customer. And we all are super laser focused on that. And I found that when that's the case, it becomes much easier to work together to solve for how do we communicate the value proposition in the most compelling and creative way? How do we deliver the most value to the customer? And you know, when you're able to do that, you can unlock bigger and bolder creative ideas. Those ideas will help your you know click through rate and your conversion rate and lower your CAC. And you know, the product experience will be great, and that will help you deliver that retention and lifetime value. So 
it's a virtuous cycle. That's why all of those teams are so important to play a role and, and why I'm just a big believer of uh, having sort of a holistic view of your marketing. Where do you think you gravitate to? Now, you manage all of those disciplines, but where do you think you're the strongest? If you had to become an individual contributor, where do you think you'd thrive the most in, in, in any of those disciplines? I, You know, it's funny. I've been an individual contributor across a couple of these disciplines. Um, <laughs> I, I, and I think that's why I'm such a believer in like the full marketing view. Is I started my career, um, my marketing career, as the you know, first acquisition marketing manager at Harry's. So I started by buying ads, you know, Google ads, Facebook ads on the founder's credit cards and scaling that program. And then I went to business school after business school, decided I was going to go to, you know, what we on the acquisition team called the dark side of brand, brand and brand management. And, you know, I worked in, in big CPG and because you don't have the feedback loop in, in CPG of like, you know, very quick data. You're not able to A-B test, right? When you're in an offline environment, at least not very easily, you're much more focused on the upfront strategy and the consumer insights. Mm. And because that's like really your one shot to get things right. So you're, you know, in, in DTC, you're just like, all right, let's get it out. Let's test it. And we'll learn in, you know, 20 minutes and then we can iterate on that learning. Um, you know, like I worked at, at Kraft Heinz, we had one shot a year to get a campaign right. And it would take you several months to find out how effective that campaign really was in market. So I really see, you know, there's so much benefit to the like speed of direct to consumer, the speed of a digital environment, being able to test and learn very quickly. But the like upfront strategy, brand and consumer insights pieces are so important to be able to put your best foot forward. So you're getting the most out of those tests. And like, that's what I love about our team is we just try to put the best of both worlds together. Speaking of your past there um, in the CPG world, you launched something called Springboard when you were at Craft, and and so you've been working with startups and scale ups even in your even in your sort of enterprise or, or big corporation days. What what's maybe one of the major lessons that you took away from from working with startups and scale ups in that environment that you brought over to to open spaces and equal parts? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, one of the, the biggest learnings to me from a business perspective was just how important it is in a multi-brand model that you can make really efficient trade-offs between those brands. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why we started Springboard originally at Kraft Heinz was, you know, when you're in a company, Kraft Heinz is a $25, $26 billion company, multi-billion dollar iconic brands. When you're faced with, you know, portfolio trade-off decisions between investing in one of those brands that returns very efficiently and taking an unknown risk, it becomes very hard to take that risk. And, you know, it's what's called innovator's dilemma. Um, it was something that, you know, happened all the time there. And so we created Springboard to basically carve out a space and dedicate resources toward new brands. And it was actually similar to a startup, we were looking to find our product market fit within the organization. So we actually took a three-pronged approach of incubating and building new brands internally, um, acquiring brands outright, and then partnering and incubating early-stage brands in, in more of an accelerator program model. But you know what was special about Springboard was being able to carve out that space where you're comparing those brands against each other at sort of similar stages of growth versus like very big or very small opportunities. And when we came to when it came to pattern, um, you know, that was part of why we decided to launch our first two brands in such quick succession was 
to have everybody sort of looking at the business at a very early stage of a similar time so that we can apply learnings at the same stage across brands. And we're also making investment off of, you know, we're making investment decisions against apples and apples, not apples and oranges. Mm. Do you find being in that environment that it is better to acquire as a test, so acquire a D2C brand as a test versus incubating and launching something in-house from scratch? If you were in that position, which route would you take? Yeah, well, I was in that position. And what we mm-hmm. found was incubating is hard. Um, it can be extremely rewarding. And you know, one of the businesses we incubated, it's a brand I still have a lot of heart for, mm-hmm. called Devour, um, that we launched and, and reached over $100 million of sales in a couple of years. Wow. But it it is still, comparatively to the rest of the portfolio, small. And it takes a lot of patience and a lot of sort of organizational stewardship and executive stewardship mm. for those brands to continue to get the investment to grow, to be, you know, really impactful players in a big legacy portfolio. Acquiring is a much quicker route to scale because, you know, you can acquire a brand that already has, you know, product market fit, some distribution, and then leverage the benefits of a large legacy player like a Kraft Heinz to expand its points of distribution, help it build more product innovation. So if I were recommending one, I think for most organizations, um, you know, acquiring a brand and then scaling that brand is the more effective, more scalable route to market. But, you know, I think if you can find and dedicate resources to brand building, um, it's obviously a unique and rewarding experience. And, you know, as a brand builder, I'm obviously partial to that route. Yeah. And what do you think... um... The differences are between launching a brand or, or a startup brand under an umbrella with a, a certain safety net and launching one in the real world. What are some of the differences that you've seen so far? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very different. It's very different. I would say the, the commonality between them is you need to find you know a real consumer insight, a real pain point, and develop an authentic um, product and, and a set of product benefits around that pain point. And that's true whether you're, you know, within a corporate environment and an entrepreneur or if you're, you know, an entrepreneur building your own thing. I would say obviously in the case of, of, you know, entrepreneurship, you get a whole host of resources that aren't necessarily available to most entrepreneurs in terms of, you know, at Kraft Times, we would incubate a brand. You would have a built-in sales team who could bring that brand to market across the country immediately in thousands of stores. You would have, you know, access to capital that you still need to pitch for, um, but, you know, it's not dilutive capital and, you know, you don't need to worry about term sheets and lawyers. It's a much more straightforward process. But on the other hand, you don't really have the same level of ownership as a true entrepreneur, right? And you're, you know, you may be the final decision maker in some respects, but you're not really owning the business in the same way as if you truly did own the business. You mentioned some of the similarities there between, you give it some some, some great, I think, contrast, but yeah. you also mentioned some similarities. And one of them was customer insight. You need to do that regardless of sort of how you're operating, whether you're in an incubator or doing this out, you know, as an entrepreneur. Um, I'd love to learn about how uh, you learn about customers uh, because from from what I've understood, it's it's pretty invasive. Like you actually go into homes to observe people uh, pre-COVID, and I know you've switched it up, but I'd love to hear a little bit about your approach to to getting customer insight. Yeah, um, 
You're right about that. You know, I would say I'm a big believer and, you know, I have been lucky to be mentored by, you know, some really customer focused and customer obsessed leaders who always taught me that seeing what people do is more powerful than having them tell you or say, right? If I ask you if you would buy this product, you're probably going to tell me yes. <laughs> um, but if I actually, you know, see you in a store environment where we're choosing between different alternatives and you have to worry about pricing and, you know, um, your, you know, husband is in the store with you and he wants to go someplace else, that gives me a much more realistic sense of what the actual trade-offs are at the point of purchase, right? So it's always more interesting to me to be able to observe um, as close as possible to real behavior versus just, you know, run a survey or you know, do a couple of interviews, which are also great methodologies that have their own time and place. Um, so we did, before COVID, um, we did go into customer homes um, and do sort of IRL interviews. And actually, we still are doing them, but we switched things up <laughs> a little bit. Um, and so we actually did over the summer, for example, a set of video interviews where we had someone cook a meal and watch them cook a meal with their cookware. And, you know, as they're cooking, can ask questions in the cooking process of, you know, why did you choose the metal spoon versus the wooden spoon? And, you know, how are you thinking about, like, you know, using the pot versus the Dutch oven? And that just gives us a lot of insight into, you know, people's habits and behaviors at home and how they're using the products. We even had people write us a love letter to their favorite kitchen utensil. Wow. And, you know, that's like, it sounds like a really funny exercise and it definitely was, but, you know, when they're writing about their favorite kitchen utensil, they're telling me all the reasons why they love it, which really are the product benefits. So it gives us a you know, very organic and natural way to uncover um, and get at the product insights because you can't just ask a customer, tell me what the product benefits are. That's not how people are trained to think, right? It's our job as marketers to find, you know, other ways to sort of extract that information from them organically so we can get to the strongest insights and conclusions. Interesting. So you, so during COVID, you're, you're still watching them, you're, you're, you're making videos of them in the kitchen and then you're, you're, uh, and then you're sort of understanding how you could, you're in doing that, you're still able to see how they operate in the kitchen in a natural environment without, without sort of being biased, the questions leading them to a certain bias. Yes. Another way we do it. So when I was at Kraft Heinz, we would do shop alongs with people in grocery stores. Mm. Um, but, you know, fortunately for us at Pattern, our store is virtual, right? It's a digital store. So another way that we, we sort of simulate or get at observed customer behavior, we actually we started doing this pre-launch. Um, we actually created dummy sort of alias websites for our brands. And we made like sort of simple Shopify storefronts for them and have run a series of tests on them to really understand um, purchase behavior and purchase intent. So, you know, one example we did, it was really at the start of COVID, Open Spaces launched um, and we immediately heard from customers that they were interested in an expanded variety of colors um, for the products. You know, hmm. the products really sit as sort of the intersection of organization and design and home decor is super personal. So we launched with a small assortment of colors to really you know, establish buying behavior product market fit, but heard very quickly, hey, I would love to get this in, you know, this color that matches my living room or my bedroom. So, you know, then very quickly we needed to pivot into, you know, which colors do we sell? How many colors do we sell? And we actually did a lot of that testing through creating ads 
of different, you know, same product, same setup, different colors, and observing click-through rate and add to carts on her dummy website. Hmm. That's interesting. And, and I, I'm, I'm very curious, who lets you, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll get back to sort of overseeing people as they purchase digitally, but who lets you into their home, like in real life? How do you convince people to one, film themselves or like just let you into the house to observe them? Yeah. Um, in the, you know, in the big CPG world, um, you know, in the big CPG world, there are, you know, firms and recruiters who manage mm-hmm. this type of research. In the startup world, the best way that we've found to do it is to sort of get to second degree connections. So asking friends to ask friends. If you just do your immediate circle, people are biased, right? And, you know, they're looking to help you and please you and kind of have a sense of the answers that maybe you're looking for. But if you try to get one degree removed, those people generally have less context, but they're still willing to help. And, you know, we, you know, typically incentivize people with you know, a 25 or $50 gift card or maybe a free product, um, you know, as a thank you for their time. Now, uh, back to the sort of the, the dummy side or, or the uh, sort of the virtual experience and, or the virtual shopping experience. What are some of the discrepancies you've seen maybe be- between what people have told you verbally and then what you experience them uh, doing on your store? What are some of the discrepancies? Maybe a story that you have, you know, somebody said they would only buy this, but then they didn't or. or... Yeah. Um, with colors. So we, we did before COVID, we did sort of a quick round of um quals on colors mm. and then we pivoted into this digital sort of validation model when we are talking to people face to face there's a lot of interest in more risky colors mm. and then when you actually got into the store environment <laughs> people people went for the basics totally absolutely and i i i totally see that when does the what, what where does the value of of the consumer insight stop at, at what point do you as an observer or as an interviewer say, okay, thank you. And I'll take it over from here. I think the biggest trap with consumer insights is expecting this consumer to come up with the solution for you. Mm. And like, that's where I like to stop the research is I think customers can give you a very clear sense of their pain points, their experiences. They can choose between a selection of items but they're not going to tell you what your innovation pipeline should be, right? That's like the marketer's job to then take that information back and synthesize it and then, you know, do the ideation and do the prioritization exercises to get to the best solution, the best outcome, then go back and validate those options for the customer, but not necessarily expecting the customer to come up with a solution and build the product for you. Yeah, that's wise. Now, uh, uh, Moving back to pattern brands and what you're doing, um, introduce us to the pattern brands philosophy, to your way of, of working, to the purpose, to the identity of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. So, so pattern is um, an early stage multi-brand consumer products business with the mission to help our customers enjoy daily life at home. And that mission was really sort of the genesis of the organization. And so in that sense, like we're truly a mission-driven organization. Um, our founders started Pattern um, and founding teams started Pattern because of you know experiences they were having in their own life when they were running um, a very successful brand development agency called Jim Lane, where they were feeling you know overworked, burned out, and started to find relief from spending time at home and really, you know, engaging and sometimes for the first time in activities like cooking 
home organization, investing more in you know your home goods and your surroundings, and wanted to share that with you know other folks, especially um, for you know in the sort of millennial stage of settling down and really establishing a home for the first time. And you know, they had a feeling that maybe some of the habits and activities that our parents grew up with and you know started building organically in their early 20s, like our generation hasn't had a chance to build um, because we immediately go into this world where we're working all the time. Um, and so they wanted to really get our customer to take a step back and to start re-engaging in their home and their space. And I'll, I'll caveat that was a, an insight that emerged before COVID. Um, COVID has obviously forced us to all spend, you know, more time in our homes and engage in a much wider set of activities in our homes than, than we ever imagined. There are, even at home for us, you know, we're looking at a, a new set of, 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 of kitchen stuff pots and pens to be specific. And there are a myriad of options. And there's a couple in the DTC space that we've shortlisted. What do you think sets equal parts um, uh, apart from all of the other items that I could choose from, me and my wife could choose from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, design is at the center of every product we build, whether it's, you know, equal parts or open spaces our DNA and our heritage is as a design agency. And so we take a lot of pride in the design and the small details that we sort of architected into every product. So Equal Parts has, you know, it's a really accessible line of cookware, especially if you're sort of upgrading to premium cookware for the first time. We built it so that it was really sort of like a foolproof set of kitchenware where we have a you know non-stick ceramic coating that's like, you know, we tested to be extremely um, durable. So we fried over a thousand eggs on it, threw it in the dishwasher, um, used metal utensils on it, and it still holds up. It's also a very forgiving surface to cook on, um, which is kind of what I like about it. I would say I'm, I'm, um, I have been honing my cooking skills through COVID, but um, definitely still enjoy working with an on-stick surface. Um, and then, you know, the handles and the design features are meant to be as easy and foolproof as possible. So we actually relaunched the cookware in September. One of the um, features that we included was a heat-resistant top knob on our lids that's designed and sort of ergonomically to fit in your hand and dissipate heat. The cookware is also super easy to stack and store. Um, most of our customers you know, have pretty small kitchens, limited um, shelf space. That was something that we learned through some of our you know, in-person interactions. And so, you know, having things that really nest and store easily together was key. And the last thing that we learned, especially as we were re-engineering and upgrading the product, is that you know, most of our customers who are investing in a nicer cookware set, often for the first time, want it to be as much about the decor as it is about functionality. So, we launched the cookware in a range of colors and really designed it so that you could, if you wanted to, have one or two pieces sit on a countertop or on a stovetop and, you know, look great with sort of in the context of your, the rest of your um, decor. What's the best-selling color for you guys? Are you allowed to share that? Yeah, I can. The best-selling <laughs> color is, is cream. Cream. That would have been my guess because I figure... Actually on, actually, on both brands, the cream is a, is a real hit. There you go. The cream. People like their neutrals. 
Um, what do you? What are some practical things that you and your team are doing to inspire customers toward your philosophy? So, if they're not already bought in, for example, um, what are you doing to inspire people towards caring about design in the kitchen? Yeah, you know, I would say first and foremost, like because we're a mission-driven company, you know, we really believe that people are you know absolutely buying the product and need to have an amazing product experience, but they're also you know hopefully buying into our mission and our philosophy because. To us, that is equally as important. So, with you know both brands, we you know we launched them with content and guidance that is there to sort of support you and inspire you on your journey, whether that's for cooking or home organization. So we've created a set of mini guides for both brands that come out through email, um, mm-hmm. uh, social media, as well as text. That you know, some of them are in the form of content and interviews. Some of them are really practical tips and tricks that come from chefs or organizers around how to organize your bathroom drawers, how to um, you know what to do if you accidentally overseason a dish. You know things that we've found really practical in our own lives that we try to share with our community as as inspiration, but also as just practical advice to support them on their journey. And how are you? Um, how are you? getting people's attention who don't know about you yet how are you capturing their attention keeping their attention their attention and turning them into customers you know we do that through a whole host of different things in terms of advertising um and media but one way that you know i think the team has done a particularly great job of late is through partnerships Hmm. where you know partnerships are very cost effective but very targeted and efficient way mm-hmm. to, you know, find folks who not only, you know, probably are in the market for our products, but also sort of subscribe to a similar set of philosophies and beliefs. So well, one thing that the team is doing right now is a 10 days of gifting partnership where every day they're creating different gifts and bundles with partner brands that align to, you know, the philosophy for equal parts and open spaces. And, you know, it's a great way to give back to our audiences, but also to really show how we fit into lifestyles of different audiences and communities. And when you first launch, you have a lot of decisions to make about pricing and where to place that, where to put that. So I'd love to hear your philosophy, your thought going into that conversation or that decision. What's going through your head and how are you nailing down sort of what that initial price is going to be? It is an art and a science. Um, <laughs> I've never met somebody who has a perfect answer for pricing. So mm. if, you're list- if you're listening, you have one. Please, re- please reach out. Um, but but I can share my perspective, which mm. is, you know, I think you have to look externally and internally. You know, I think it's it's important to look at the market, segment the market, understand um, who you're firing, what your competitor set is, mm. and how you fit into that. And then I think, you know, looking internally at, what type of product are you trying to build? So, you know, if you're trying to fit into the mainstream market with a premium product, then you know you need to be able to acquire those materials very efficiently, right, in order to play at that tier. Or there has to be other efficiencies of the model that work out. If you're trying to, you know, sort of compete with sort of mainstream product in the mainstream market, then that decision becomes very straightforward, for example. So... Mm. I think it's important to look externally at who you're firing. Internally, it's sort of your product brief and what you're trying to build. Um, and then, you know, the last piece, which I think is, is sometimes overlooked, is what is the margin structure that you need to support the business? And particularly for direct-to-consumer businesses, 
Um, and particularly in today's environment, profitability is so important. And so understanding what you think your cost of acquisition will be and you know the nature of the business in terms of whether it's recurring revenue or one-time revenue, um, you know, doing the math on, on that and what you think your average transaction size is is really important too, because that's ultimately how the business business's success and viability will be measured. You mentioned recurring or or one time revenue. How are you guys thinking about maybe subscription uh, subscription models or or recurring revenue at Open Spaces Equal Parts? Yeah, so our brands currently, just by nature of being sort of home goods, are typically one time purchases or sort of what we kind of call manual purchases. Mm-hmm. So we have no subscription element in the business today, but what we do see is actually. Um, a pretty strong pattern of folks coming back and buying multiple items over time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, especially I would say for a business like Open Spaces, you know, once we get you hooked on <laughs> organizing, there's a whole host of different occasions, um, rooms and needs that, you know, require that type of attention. So typically somebody will come to us to organize one space, get the products, love the experience and come back when they're moving or their needs change. Um, if, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the the pattern brands or um, their their visual identity, uh, one of the things you guys use, if I'm not mistaken, it's the tree, and you have you know for each brand you uh, add a fruit. Um, will there be when when you think of subscription services and recurring revenue, is there a space in that family on that tree for subscription services? Does that fit into your philosophy and what you see for the future of the brand? Yeah, it absolutely does. Um... And, you know, the way that we think about it is really how do we build businesses that are aligned to our mission? Mm -hmm. And, you know, our mission is to help our customer enjoy daily life at home. And, you know, there's a wide range of products within the home that, you know, meet those criteria that we're excited about. And and certainly a number of them have a replenishable aspect. Going into Black Friday, I see you guys do have a couple of promotions happening. What was the conversation like, you know, with your leadership team or with your team regarding Black Friday, Cyber Monday, going into the holidays? How are you guys thinking about that? Yeah, you know, this is our, our second holiday season on equal parts, first holiday season on open spaces. So we knew from, from last year that this was a really pivotal time of year for cookware. Um, we saw, you know, even without, we've just been in market for a few weeks by the time that the holidays hit. Um, and we saw just organically a surge of interest in cookware as a gift. And so, you know, the decision from, from that standpoint was fairly straightforward this year because we knew the customer was there and was looking for, um, you know, the opportunity to buy gifts from us. And so, you know, we believe in following the customer. And so from, from a cookware perspective, it was really straightforward. For open spaces, to be totally honest with you, um, we didn't really know. If you typically look at, you know, home organization and the category, you know, most of the behavior is Q1 focused, right? New Year's resolution, spring cleaning, and then, you know, typically peaks again during moving season in the summer, sort of peak moving season. So, you know, we decided to really sort of test and learn this year for holiday. We launched one limited edition item that we thought could be more giftable didn't necessarily know if the demand was there, but ran um, our our sort of testing Black Friday campaign and saw an unbelievable response. And I think it just speaks to the fact that these products are not just storage products. They really sit at sort of the intersection of storage and decor. And decor is a very giftable category. So, you know, I think going forward, expect to see more for us (laughs) in, in the holiday season on open spaces. 
Awesome. And I know that, uh, that, you're, that you guys are passionate about caring for our planet. Um, how does that care influence your day-to-day management of the brand? Um, what have been some corners maybe you've avoided cutting as a result of pursuing a healthy planet? So sustainability is something that comes to life in every product decision we've made. Um, and it's, it's a huge piece of you know, what our team cares about and you know, the mission of these brands. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, promoting enjoyment can't come at the expense of others, especially not at the expense of our planet, right? So um, that's something that, that we've intentionally architected into the product. One example um, across both brands of sort of a, a strategic and intentional choice we made was just to avoid plastic packaging in any of the products. And when you're shipping products overseas across the country, um, especially products that can be fragile, plastic is typically, single-use plastic is typically a very cheap and efficient way mm-hmm. of you know, protecting those products. But we've really pushed our team to come up with you know, recyclable and natural alternatives to plastic that are you know, better for the environment, and we found ways to make them equally as effective. What risks does focusing on sustainability maybe pose to the pattern brand's family? Like When you think of competitors, for example, that don't value that, that don't prioritize that, um, that might put you at a disadvantage. Um, what risks do you think sustainability poses to you? To be honest, you know, deciding to invest in this can be more costly. You know, mm-hmm. part of the reason why people use single-use plastic filled with air is because it's a very cheap way of, of packing products, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so we've had to make the decision to lean in and invest and, you know, spend to, you know, what we believe is to do the right thing. And, you know, we do that because we, it's, you know, aligned with our values, aligns to our mission. We think it's the right thing to do. But, but to be honest, Roger, we've also found that our customers care and appreciate and notice the difference. And, you know, our data backs that up. Our customer, you know, is typically somebody who cares more than average about the environment, is very concerned about the future of the planet, and I think notices when brands try to go the extra mile and, and make the difference. And, you know, we're by no means perfect. Um, there's, you know, a long way to go on, on this stuff, but, you know, we, we commit to doing our best at every stage of the business. And, you know, I think our customers appreciate that, that transparency and intentionality. Yeah. It's something that I think some people forget when they hear about a brand being sustainable. I think they hear the, the shininess of it, but they forget that it's to a certain extent sacrificial, right? Like it, it does eat into our margins. This does cost us something, right. To do the right thing here. So, so, um, so I, I, I like hearing that. Thank you for sharing. Um, who have been some of the people that you've been been influenced by? Um, as we wrap up here, I'd love to know who some of the people that who are some of the people that you look up to in your life and in your career, whether it's professional or, or personal. Who are some people that you know you lean on, whether you know them personally or not? Who are some of the people you lean on um, to sort of guide you uh, through life and, and career? I've been so lucky to work for like, really incredible mentors who instilled in me. Um, you know, a love of, of marketing and um, a business at like a really pivotal time in my career. So, so I would just name um, a couple. I would say, you know, first and foremost, the Harry's founders, mm-hmm. seeing them operate, you know, from a very early stage and scale the business very quickly um, in a very you know, consistent and disciplined way. 
has been you know, tremendously inspiring. But I would say the biggest lesson I honestly took from them was just a mentality of no job is too big or too small. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they will jump in and answer, you know, customer emails. They will write letters to the customer. If somebody's having a bad day, like they'll just be all hands on deck um, to see how they can help and find a way. And, you know, I really believe that that type of servant leadership is, is so crucial, um, especially in like an early stage growing business. So that, that was something that stuck with me from, from a very early stage. Um, my, my boss and mentor from Harry's, Allie Melnick, who, who currently runs the Flamingo brand there, just, you know, was probably the first person who really taught me to be curious about customers mm. and was always looking to sort of lead with the customer in mind. And, and lastly, from my, my Kraft Heinz experience, I was so lucky to work with this woman, um, Michelle St. Jacques. She's now the CMO of Miller Coors. And, you know, from, from her, honestly, I learned first to just lead authentically. She's very true to who she is. And, you know, people respect her for it. And, you know, the sort of corollary to that is to really embrace and take creative risks. And if you take, you know, bold creative risks and stand by your creative, especially when it's something that you know the customer is going to resonate with, um, it pays off. And, and I really learned that and, and was lucky to have that support from her. No job too big, servant leadership, customer curiosity, lead authentically, embrace and take creative risks. Those are some, some great lessons from, that you've picked up from your mentors. Katie, thank you so much for, for joining us today. It was, a, it, was a, it was a delight to chat. It was such a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. Awesome. If you want to learn more about Pattern Brands, go to patternbrands.com uh, and check out Equal Parts, check out Open Spaces, the family of brands, sign up, get notified for, for, for any new brands that they launch. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. This is the D2C Growth Show by Hashtag Paid.